This week, the Comics Guys explain the history of Image Comics. Explain this! Yes, hello, and uh, welcome everyone to Explain This Comics Guys. And like Ben said, today we'll be doing the history of Image. Now, this is a huge topic. Uh, Image is a massive company. They've been around for, at this point, a very long time. And they published hundreds of different titles. We're not going to mention most of those today. We're going to be talking a lot about the founding and about why Image exists and how it exists and that sort of thing. There's something that you feel like we left out or that we didn't cover that's uh, worth covering in more detail. Back us on Patreon and let us know and we'll do an episode about whatever thing you think we should have covered here. So with that, Darren, how does Image start? Let's set a scene here, which is uh, December 18th, 1991. And we're in New York. And uh, it's the first ever Sotheby's auction of comic books. Okay, so it's like, you know, it's the, this, this is kind of like a sign that comic books are being taken seriously by the art world. Um, they've kind of recognized the amount of money that's in the collector's market and that there is a, you know, an interest in this. And somebody as like serious and with the history that Sotheby's does is doing its first actual comic book art show. Uh, Jerry Weist organized it, and he was a longtime collector. He wrote a bunch of books uh, about comics and comics history, and he worked with Sotheby's and with Marvel and DC and you know other publishers to put this together. So, real um, quick, just for everyone out there uh, who doesn't know what Sotheby's is, what is Sotheby's? Sotheby's is one of the longest-running, oldest, and uh, uh, wealthiest. Um, professional auction houses for art and for, uh, you know, uh, uh, antiques, right? Like, you know, that's Sotheby's is where you sell, uh, you know, like the finest old timey jewelry or, you know, furniture from the 17th century or, you know, art painted from the Renaissance or whatever, right? Like it's the, this is the, one of the high end collectible items, you know, collectible antiques marketing uh, uh, organizations and it's it themselves have been around since the mid 19th century. So awesome. And so in New York City, they're holding, you know, the first time they've ever like kind of organized through Sotheby's a, an auction of comic book art, comic book actual comics, and then also original art by comic book artists. Um, for example, they have at the in this auction, uh, you can actually go online and take a look at like the you know the program from this uh, from this auction. They have a Detective Comics number twenty seven, uh, the first ever appearance of Batman is oh. put up for auction. It's not in the best condition. There are better condition ones out there, but this is a you know fine to very fine copy, uh, you know from nineteen thirty nine, and it goes for fifty five grand in nineteen ninety one. Uh, Frank Frazetta Vampirella uh, cover, just the painting of the cover, the original art from it, uh, goes for $77,000. So they've got some serious stuff there. Now, Terry Stewart is the president of Marvel at the time, and he is there uh, both kind of, he's representing Marvel um, on behalf of Marvel Entertainment, and he's there both as a buyer and a seller. Right, like Marvel has put up some of its material that it owns mm -hmm. uh, up for auction, and is also looking to buy other people's stuff. Right, they they would like to get some of their get their hands on some material that is key to Marvel's history that they don't own. Right, like they don't have any copies of it. Oh, whatever. okay. So they're participating in this on both sides, and in fact, Terry has hired an actor 
to come in some guy we don't know his name but some you know like semi professional uh you know soap opera guy or something probably from new york um is there dressed up as spider man making their bids right so like spider man is hanging out in the crowd with all of these guys in you know tuxedos and business suits or whatever with his little paddle holding it up to like bid on different things um and they bought for example the nicest thing that they bought that they successfully won is they bought a, a an unused cover for marvel mystery comics number two done by bill everett that was not used by uh timely at the time but they still owned somebody had like owned the art that everett had done found it in everett's collection um and marvel themselves bought it from the guy who owned it for fourteen thousand dollars so it's you know they're they're doing all right now what was interesting or part of what's interesting to this is Okay, so you kind of expect there has always been this kind of history of old comics and old art going for decent amounts of money. These are, you know, some pretty impressive numbers that they're throwing around, but that's for the old stuff. Um, for the first time, Sotheby's in 1991 kind of like is acknowledging the existence of the collector's market for current stuff, for new stuff. And so some of the people who have put their original art uh, up for auction are some of marvel's biggest artists right rob liefeld is putting up some of his own art jim lee is putting up some of his own art and they've coordinated with marvel to do this but remember this is a relatively recent development in the history of like comic book publishing that these guys even own their art right that they've got access to this to go up and sell it themselves this way you know marvel is right now still in the middle of its disputes with jack kirby over the ownership of his old art from the 60s, right? But yeah. here in 1991, Rob Liefeld can show up at a Marvel event with the original art that he had, you know, turned into Marvel, uh, mm -hmm. his copy of the original art for the cover of X-Force number one, uh, you know, and can sell it himself uh, and, and keep the vast majority of the money, right? Like the auction house had, you know, was getting a percentage of it or whatever. And so, Liefeld's original art for X-Force number one at this auction goes for $39,000. And that blows the crowd away. Nobody expected that, right? Like they were like, oh yeah, he'll get a few grand for that. That was listed in the, in the program that they expected to get like three to $5,000. And they got 39. Jeez. The very next piece that goes on for sale up there for it is the cover of X-Men number one by Jim Lee. And that breaks Liefeld's record. Like literally the next one goes for 40,000. So what causes them to sell for so much? Are they just it's like- collectors. This is the collector's market, right? These are the hottest current artists with the hottest current titles right. whose, you know, like big releases uh, were big events within the comic book world and were bought by speculators. Right. All of those people who bought X-Men number one, you know, when it came out, the, the Jim Lee, you know, X-Men number one and immediately put it into a plastic bag and put it away in the hopes that it would continue to be worth a fortune. Right. Okay. Um, those are the very same people who have driven the art market to get the original art for that piece. Right. Like that, that comic is so well known. X-Men number one at the time was the best selling comic in history. Right, it sold a zillion copies. Now that's kind of a bogus thing because we didn't keep track of the numbers very well back in the golden age. Right. But as far as like kind of like modern comic book history, X Men number one was an enormous smash success. So owning the singular piece, right, like the original artwork, that's a that's a one of a kind piece. 
and we don't have anything to compare it to, right? We're, we're creating a marketplace for it right now because there's no kind of like historical uh, records to compare it to. And that creation of that market happens at a time when the collector's market is at its all-time high. So both of those pieces, and a bunch of other ones too, but those are kind of the two most notable ones, go for enormous amounts of money, much more than the Sotheby's quote-unquote experts thought. And so this is a big event. This is a huge thing in kind of like the comics world because now every artist has a scale to measure themselves against, right? When they bring their original art to a convention or they sell it in some other auction somewhere, now they can look back at what Jim Lee just made and what Rob Liefeld just made and say, okay, I, you know, I, I expect that my piece will go for thus and so percentage of what they made, right? So we're seeing a marketplace, uh, you know, fueled by speculators being created in real time. It's happening, you know, like right in front of everybody. Right. That's not even the most interesting thing that's happening at that moment, though, in New York, because all of these people, uh, all of these independent artists, all of these freelancers have come to New York to be to participate in this. Right. And while they're here, while they're in New York this week to come to this event and obviously make a great deal of money themselves, uh, you know, selling their stuff, they are also having a meeting. They're having a, several meetings actually, but the ones that happen right before and right after this auction event are also go are going to themselves change the world of comics because it's at these meetings that image is basically created as a company. Right. Cause these are all of the guys who would go on to form image. Exactly. Yeah. So let's start with those people and let's kind of like set up this list of people who are here to is being, oh, you have, you have these people here. Uh, Rob Liefeld obviously is, uh, you know, the, has just made, you know, who just made $39,000 for one page of art, basically for one cover of art. Um, he got started in the comics business when he was 18. Uh, he sent some sketches of some various existing superheroes to a guy named Gary Carlson, who was an indie publisher who had a comic called Megaton, Megaton Comics. And at 18, Liefeld, you know, kind of like sold him some art and got some characters to, uh, to appear in Megaton. And looking at that, those pieces that got published got DC to notice him. And so within a year or two, uh, he was, uh, he, he'd gone to a San Francisco convention, met some DC people and showed them the megaton art and they hired him basically on the spot. Uh, and so he had done, uh, warlord, uh, as a series for a bit. And then he did the Hawk and Dove limited series, which really kind of like brought attention to him. It was, uh, uh, with, uh, Barbara Kiesel was doing the, the writing for it. And that was kind of like a surprise smash hit. Uh, that limited series because nobody had really thought that much about those two characters before and it was kind of like a big comeback for them as characters uh, right. And so that got him a lot of attention people, you know, were like attracted to the art that he was making um, And once again, he's like 20. He can't even drink yet. Right. And he's, you know, like making some serious money so Marvel uh, You know offered a fair amount of money to bring him from DC where he did uh, New Mutants and then turned the New Mutants into X-Force so that's where he is at this point in his career, right? He's still young, but he's now been doing this for a few years. And the transition of like New Mutants into X-Force was just a smash hit. So he's a very hot, popular young artist. Um, one of his close buddies 
is in a similar situation to him, is actually kind of even ahead of him bit, a bit, is Todd McFarlane. And Todd McFarlane is also in New York for this, uh, for this event. Right. Todd McFarlane, very much when he was a kid, wanted to be a baseball player. Um, and, uh, you know, loved baseball and incidentally did art as a hobby kind of thing. Right. But he very much intended, he was trying to get to the major leagues, uh, and he played in college, uh, was scouted. He was good enough to like be paid to, you know, to be paid attention to, um, and, but, uh, never quite kind of like made the leap, right? Like I've, I've read the scouting report on him, like a professional scout on him, which says that he's really fast and is good defensively, but he will never hit. He's, he's not a good enough hitter to make it to the majors. Uh, and so when he kind of like realizes, you know, he gets to be 21, 22, 23, and realizes he's not going to sign with a big league team, he starts doing art professionally. Uh, he did some fill-in art for Coyote, another indie series done by Steve Englehart, uh, who was a well-known, once upon a time, was a very well-known Marvel uh, and then DC uh, writer. And the work that he did for Engelhart got him several more gigs at DC. And so he did Batman Year Two. He did Infinity Incorporated, the uh, Sons and Daughters of the Justice Society. And then once again, Marvel came along and kind of poached him from DC uh, and brought him in as kind of like their hot new artist. The first thing he did there was The Hulk with Peter David. And that was a splash. That was another kind of like surprise hit, right? Like Hulk had not been a particularly popular character, had not been particularly hot in the collector's market until the McFarlane uh, uh, art kind of like caught everybody's attention, this, his particular kind of unique style. Mm -hmm. uh, from that, he moves to Spider-Man. And of course, from Spider-Man, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about like his kind of like whole run there, but obviously he makes Spider-Man the biggest thing in the world. Um, Spider-Man was always, you know, had already pretty successful, but his work on Spider-Man, his art on Spider-Man kind of, you know, brought to that character and Marvel sales to a whole new level. Um, in August of 1990, they gave him, he was, had been working on the main Amazing Spider-Man series, and they gave him his own spin-off Spider-Man series. The game Spider-Man, I think it was the fourth comic that Spider-Man was starring in at the time. That was dedicated, that was McFarlane was going to draw and write. And in August of 1990, his issue, Spider-Man, uh, with, with no adjective, uh, number one of those sold two and a half million copies that month in August 1990. So once again, he is one of Marvel's top guys. He is producing money for them and is in great demand as a relatively young artist. Uh, so the two of them uh, have become friends. They've kind of gone through a similar situation, right? Like bo they both started at DC and kind of got poached by Marvel. They're within a few years of age of each other. They have mm -hmm. this kind of very you know, similar background. So of course it becomes it's pretty you know reasonable they they become friends and they get to talking, and you have to understand that neither of them uh, has any expectation. They are part of the generation because they're guys in their early twenties in the nineties. They grew up with stories, you know, like their their entire lifetimes. Marvel has existed, and they've grown up their entire lives with stories about how Marvel has mistreated its artists. Right? They've known about Jack Kirby. And all of the, the the problems that Kirby went through their entire lives, 
that's been going on. And every other, you know, uh, dispute that Marvel ever had with the creator, right? They, with their fights with Neil Adams and their fights with Steve Gerber and their fights with all this other. So they, they came into this business with no sense of that, no expectation that Marvel was going to take care of them, right? That Marvel was going to uh, support them, that Marvel was in any other way, anything other than a business, right? They have no idealism about the industry. They are absolutely 100% concentrating on, we get paid for what we do. Marvel pays us. We are successful. We make money for Marvel. Therefore, Marvel pays us. That's the extent of our relationship. There's no emotional content to that, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, obviously, both of them have had you know, sudden successes. They have turned... Uh, they, they've increased the sales on their respective titles, and Marvel is quite happy with them and paying them pretty reasonably well. But there's all of this other stuff that Marvel is doing that they're not getting a piece of, right? They get paid for their art. They get to keep their art and resell you know, their art to collectors and that sort of thing. But if a Marvel t-shirt comes out with uh, you know, Spider-Man as drawn by Todd McFarlane, they don't get any money for that, from that t-shirt sale. Right, they don't get any money from posters. They don't get any money from uh, you know all of kind of like the, the uh, pins, you know, like any kind of stuff that Marvel is selling with their arts. Their art is you know it's work for hire. It belongs to Marvel, right? And so no piece of the merchandising comes at this point, uh, you know, in in their contracts to them individually, and they have you know started to notice how big a chunk of Marvel's income as a company is coming from that sort of thing, right? Like not just the sales of the comics, but the sales of the t-shirts and the sales of the bed sheets and the sales of the, you know, whatever, all of the ancillary products that have Spider-Man or the X-Men or whatever on them. It's their argument basically that we made those characters that popular, therefore we should get a piece of that merchandising, right? Right. So they are start going around, you know, they're they're talking about this. Uh, they are both, you know, like I said, they're young and full of energy, and they start talking to other creators about how unfair this is, right? And uh, they start kind of like looking at the other artists and writers, mostly artists, uh, of their generation and kind of like are comparing notes about this. And so they talk to, one of the first people they talk to is a guy named Jim Lee. Jim Lee uh, was another young artist who'd been very successful in the last few years. He was a Korean American uh, um, uh, artist who had sworn to his parents that uh, he, that he he promised that he would take a year trying to break into the comic book industry, and if it didn't work, he'd go to med school like they wanted him to. And uh, his first year that he tried doing this was 1988, and he got his first gigs from Marvel doing Alpha Flight. Uh, and then from Alpha Flight, he went to Punisher uh, War Journal and then took over as the artist for the X-Men. So by 1991, you know, he's still he's only three years in, but it's like med school is pretty much out the window. right? Like I'm making so much money in comics, you know, like young artists. Uh, he is working. So this is, you know, it's the 90s. Nobody has to work in New York anymore. Right. There's there's no the Marvel bullpen, which never really existed the way that we coveted, really doesn't exist at this point. These people are working from all over the country. And Jim Lee has a studio that several other artists who are just his friends, several of whom themselves have gotten 
have this with Marvel or DC or whatever are doing, you know, like mainstream superhero comics. Uh, one of those is a guy named Mark Silvestri. Silvestri is a little older than these guys, right? Like most of these guys now are in their early 20s. Lester is like in his late 20s. And he's been doing this for a while. Uh, of artists in the same physical studio. And they start kind of talking to him about, you know, hey, shouldn't we be getting a better share of this? Shouldn't we be kind of like making a big deal out of this? Uh, and so he brings in one more guy who's going to be, you know, kind of important to this operation right. uh, named Jim Valentino. Jim Valentino is considerably older than the rest of these guys. He's a veteran in the industry. He was born in 1952, so he's about to turn 40. Um, and he had been an indie cartoonist for a long time before breaking into kind of like superheroes, right? He had done uh, a bunch of kind of like indie titles that hadn't made a lot of money, but had given him a lot of kind of like indie credibility, right? He'd worked for Dave Sim uh, doing a backup title in service. Right. I mean, so this meant that he had like indie cred that not necessarily the rest of these other kids might have had. Um, you know, he did Normal Man. He did a bunch of other, you know, kind of like satire stuff and had only gone over to Marvel starting in the last couple of years where he had done Guardians of the Galaxy for Marvel, which was un yet another, you know, kind of like surprise hit. Uh, people didn't really have high expectations for it. And Valentino's art style, even though he's older than these guys, he definitely was kind of like following the popular art style of the time, which was draw like McFarlane, draw like Jim Lee, draw like, you know, those kind of guys. Right. And so he was kind of like brought into this discussion because he knew the indie side, right? Like most of these other guys had never gone into business for themselves. They had immediately started working for one of the big two and only really knew how that worked. So they started talking to Jim Valentino just to learn kind of like what, what the possibilities were. If, hey, if we decided to go solo, if we decided to separate ourselves from Marvel, what would that look like? Right? Mm -hmm. Like what kind of business would, would we, be, we be able to have? So he kind of is kind of explaining to them a lot of how this works. So this this discussion has now been going on for a few months, kind of like behind the scenes, this kind of collection of artists, most of whom are, in fact, all of whom at this point are working for Marvel, have worked for DC, still do occasionally, um, who are starting to say, you know, we're, we're definitely uh, uh, interested in, in doing a, a solo stuff, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, they bring in, they're talking to Eric Larson, who will be the last of the original members. And Eric Larson had like Liefeld, been friends with Gary Carlson and had his first stuff published in Megaton. So they'd known each other for years. And in Megaton is where he first did Savage Dragon, right? Like the first version of Savage Dragon came out as a, a part of the Megaton anthology titles. And then he had been part of the indie super scenes in the early 80s. He did DN Agents uh, for Eclipse Comics. He'd done art for a bunch of Abera Comics titles and everything, which eventually got him a gig at DC, right? Like he can just kind of like moved up the line from the indies into DC, where he did Superman, he did Outsiders, he did Doom Patrol. Um, and then he replaced McFarlane on Spider-Man in 1990 when McFarlane was, you know, looking, looking to quit. And he was very mad at Marvel at the moment, at this particular moment, because he had done a proposal to Marvel for a Nova solo book for the character Nova. He was going to bring Nova back and make him cool and make him hip and et cetera for us. And that had gotten very far through the process before Tom DeFalco killed it 
because they were going to do New Warriors and they wanted Nova to be on that team. So they didn't want him to also have a solo title. Right. And Larson was very upset. He put a lot of time and effort into his proposal. He really thought this was a big thing. And like the idea that Marvel would just kind of kill it at the last minute made him say, you know, all right, well, that, that it's your call, right? You own this character and this happens, right? But wouldn't it be better if I owned this and not have to deal with this crap? Not have to deal. I mean, you know, like, yeah, shit happens, but not to, you know, if, if I was self-publishing this, I could just go ahead with all of these cool ideas that I have for this character, right? Right. So he has a conversation with Lee, with Liefeld, with McFarlane, saying, you know what? Savage Dragon, that thing that I did for Megaton, I'm going to go do it solo. I'm going to go do it indie. I'm not going to sell this to, to, I'm not going to sell Savage Dragon to Marvel or to DC. I'm going to do this as my own thing. I'm, you know, I'm striking off on my own. Yes, I I expect to keep doing, uh, you know, bigger money freelance stuff, but like, this is where my heart is, right? This is what I really want to do. And McFarlane and Liefeld kind of got inspired by this. They're like, well, if he's taking off to go do Savage Dragon on his own, we need, we could, we could do this together. We could do this as a group. We're all friends. Let's form a company ourselves. Let's put something together that, you know, we'll own that like, we'll be able to be in control of. And, and, you know, we're, we're some of the most popular hippest, newest, youngest artists, uh, you know, in, in the business, there's a lot that we could do here. So they are all in town for this auction, right? Jim Lee is particularly pissed at Marvel because he's selling his art there and uh, Marvel paid for his plane ticket to fly out to New York. But Jim had to pay for his wife's ticket by himself, right? In order for his wife to come to the auction and see him, you know, like selling all this stuff for $40,000, they made Jim pay for his own wife's ticket. We're not going to pay for your, you know, we'll we'll pay for you, but not your wife. You have to cover her. And, And Lee's response was like, that's the pettiest thing. Yeah. Right. Like here I am making all of these public appearances for you. I'm talking to the press in New York and everything, and you're making me pay my own wife's way. Right. Like how ridiculous and petty considering all of the money that's being thrown around in this operation, you can't spare a couple hundred bucks to fly my wife out. Right. And so he's annoyed by this. He's already in a bad mood. He goes to the auction and sits in the room with Mark Silvestri who, like I said, he's you know in a, in a studio with, um, and that's where Silvestri finally gets convinced. Silvestri wasn't sure he wanted to join this, but Lee is so upset that he's like whispering to him during the auction about how you know it's going to be so much better when they take off on their own that he talks Silvestri into it literally in the auction house chamber, right? And Silvestri says, "Okay, I'm you know I'm in I'm, whatever you're doing," and he tr- they tried Lee tried to recruit a bunch of other people at that same meeting, right? At that same auction uh, for the day, he called in uh, Scott Williams. He called in Dale Keown and several other people, but none of them were as interested as this kind of like core group of six, right? Mm-hmm. So the night before the actual auction, Liefeld, McFarlane, and Lee set up a meeting with Terry Stewart, with the president of Marvel, and Tom DeFalco, who's the editor-in-chief. And uh, they come in and they basically say, here's the deal. We quit and we're not negotiating. This isn't a, this isn't a you know, effort to try to get more money or whatever. Uh, you know, we're, not, we're not expecting you to come back with an offer so that we'll stay on all of our best-selling tales. We're telling you right now we're leaving. 
and here's why. And they start listing all of the ways that they feel that Marvel has been unfair to them. And they say it's, you know, they're, they're only willing to confirm the night before the, the auction, Sylvester hasn't signed on yet, right? Because he won't sign on until the next day. So they basically inform Marvel that it's Liefeld, McFarlane, Lee, and Eric Larson are all gone. Yeah. We're, we're leaving as a group, the four of us. Um, and then Valentino and Sylvester will come on in the next couple of days while they do this. Um, and this meeting, uh, you know, goes, as you might imagine, very badly, <laughs> right? It's, you know, the, uh, Stuart and DeFalco are kind of taken by surprise by this. They didn't know. They had certainly heard complaints, but they didn't realize they were this serious. And they are looking at an enormous portion of their most successful stable of artists at a time when, you know, like their sales are better than they've ever been. Marvel wow. is riding high. They're spending gobs of money on promotional stuff. The, you know, the market is great and rising. They're seeing the underpinnings of that success basically just walking out on them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a rough meeting and a, a lot of people, you know, like wind up with, bad feelings about how that, that, that actually goes. Uh, DeFalco in particular is mad because this came so late, right? They are just now in December of 1991, planning the summer titles for 1992, right? Like the big releases and the, the crossovers and the annuals and all of this stuff. And like these guys basically waited until the very last moment to quit. We're going to have to scramble to replace them if we want any big titles to come out next summer. You know, so like you couldn't have told us this two months ago when we could have actually like replaced you on time. And, you know, they're all just like, nope, this is the day we felt like doing it. So we felt like doing it. Right. <laughs> and DeFalco has always believed, says even to this day, that they chose that time on purpose to hurt Marvel as much as they could going out the door. Right. Like exactly. this one last kind of like, you know, knife in the ribs on the way out the door is, oh, by the way, all of those plans you have for the X Men annuals and the Spider Man annuals and everything else that's coming out this summer, uh, you know, Screw those because we're not we're not participating. So Silvestri, like I said, the next day they said Silvestri agrees. Valentino comes on board. They have another meeting before they leave New York, where they go to DC and basically tell them the same thing. Now most of these guys at this point did not have any active uh, titles with DC, and so the meeting that they have is considerably less angst filled, right? Like it's like DC's, you know. Uh, uh, not taking as much of a hit as Marvel is. Yeah, they all used to use these guys sometimes, but none of them had a regular monthly title at DC to walk away from. Why'd they even feel like they had to go talk to DC then? Because, uh, well, one, because they are, you know, kind of like gathering uh, steam in the industry, right? Like they want everybody to hear what they're doing. Gotcha. One. Two, they wanted DC to know the same way that Marvel did, why we're leaving, because they had the same problems with DC that they had with Marvel, gotcha. right? Like they, the DC also wasn't paying people for its t-shirts and its whatever's, you know, for that. DC's response to all of this is, okay, we may not be have everything that you want, but you have to admit we're better than Marvel, right? Which is true. At the time, DC's contracts were considerably more creator-friendly than Marvel's were. Um, okay. and DC did in fact have people who could do titles, uh, where there was a, there was an ownership level for the creators where the creators participated in the actual, like, you know, trademark and the actual profits made off of the, the, uh, individual characters, right? Neil Gaiman owns 
almost all of Sandman while he's working at DC at this point, right? right? That is a change that happened since he was hired, right? Like when he first went to work for DC at this uh, in the you know, 1990, uh, he was doing Sandman entirely as work for hire. And he went to them when it got off to a very strong start and was very successful and basically negotiated ownership of the character, you know, to like to hang on to it because he was saying, I'll, I'll leave like Alan Moore if you don't, right? Right. And DC had been through all of the miserable publicity that they'd gotten through from pissing off Alan Moore that DC's, you know, investors, DC's stockholders, are like, don't you dare lose another major British creator <laughs> the way you just did right like for the learn something from how alan moore left and make sure that you work out a deal and keep neil gaiman happy right and so from that gaiman wound up with a contract that he was very happy with uh and sandman has obviously sold zillions of copies over you know 30 years for, for dc so they're pretty happy with it and several other creators kind of like got in on like the at least partial ownership of characters that they had been doing work for hire. Um, James Robinson owned a piece of Starman, right? Like all these mm -hmm. other kind of characters that were tied to the work for hire original setting. The individual creators got to have a piece of it, right? Because of what Gaiman had negotiated because of what Moore had done in the first place. So DC was a friendlier place, but you still write like t-shirt, sales still went to the company, not to the person, right? That kind of thing. Um, also, DC uh, had created all of this, like uh, McFarlane and Liefeld were particularly upset that when DC did this deal with Gaiman and then kind of like publicly went to their creators and said, look how cool we're being to creators, they hadn't involved any artists in that discussion, right? They were talking to Neil Gaiman, the writer. And the the are the various artists who worked on Sandman didn't own any piece of Sandman, right? And so they were like, "Well, hell, the you know, from our point of view, the artist is frequently the most important person in this operation. Anybody can write, uh, but without your star artist, you don't have a hit story." Well, obviously that's wrong. Sandman had you know fifty different artists and you know did just fine. But the 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 image creator argument was without the artist you don't have anything we're the ones who should wind up with the ownership so you know that's that's where that sat and that the dc fight was considerably or the dc meeting was considerably less fighty but uh you know was still they they felt it needed to happen right yeah that all makes sense especially since you know artists are in their mind getting the uh the short end of the stick right and once again, they can point to their own sales. They can point to the speculation market and say, you know, the, the stuff that is worth so much money, the stuff that is driving this market is all art based. There's no writer who coming to a new title drives the sales up the level that a new hot artist does, right? Like they don't care who's actually writing X-Men at this time. They care who's doing the art on X-Men, right? Uh, that don't care who's, you know, but the, as far as like the image that those creators were concerned, they were the primary drivers of this market. So Valentino sits down with this group now. And like I said, he's the oldest one of this group of, you know, six people. And it's like, okay, this is great. What's your plan, right? Like, how are we going to distribute? How are we going to, who's going to handle all of this stuff? How are we going to, 
you know, manage the finances. What what are we going to use for a warehouse? You know, like like all the all the practical questions, right? And mm-hmm. they're all like, uh, we don't know. We we have no <laughs> idea. We none of us has ever done this before. We were hoping you were going to tell us how that was going to work, right? Because you've done, you know, you've you've worked indie uh, on the side, right? Right. And so Valentino introduces them and talks to uh, some of the guys from one of the one of the third party publishers around at the time, which is called Malibu. And Malibu was a tiny fraction of the marketplace at this point, right? They had less than one percent of you know like the of of the market for sales. Um, but the president of Malibu was a guy named Dave Olbrich, who was of the same kind of opinion about creators' rights that all of the individual image guys were, right? And he very much felt that, you know, writer, artists and writers should own the things that they're creating. If something is successful, they're the ones who should get paid off. They're the ones who should get the t-shirts. They're the ones who should get the whatever. And he makes a, he, uh, Valentino talks to Ulbrich and gets Ulbrich to make the pitch directly to Liefeld and say, you know, he's the, he agrees with you. And I know how to, I know how to, this stuff. I know how to, you know, uh, I, I know how to market. I know how to distribute. I know I can get your products into stores. And so they basically say, okay, we're going to form a our own company, but then we're going to partner with Malibu and Malibu will handle all of the physical boring stuff. Malibu will handle the house, and we will, ju- we will provide you with, you know, hit comics, right? And McFarlane is is kind of like saying uh, uh, at this point that like he was he's literally trying to get anybody else to join this because as he says, the, any individual could walk away and do this, and it wouldn't make that big a splash, right? It would be a small news story for a bit, but if we cripple Marvel by leaving all at once, we are creating something as a group. This kind of like mass exodus would draw press, would draw marketing, would make people aware of what's going on. As his his line, he has an interview in Comic Scene in '92 where he says, "Quitting one at a time does it just doesn't work." Neil Adams quit one at a time. Jack Kirby quit, and they just replaced those guys. But if Neil and Jack and Gil Kane and John Basima and Jim Starlin and Don Heck had all quit the exact same day and started their own company, they probably would have been pretty successful. Kind of lends some credence to uh, Tom DeFalco's uh, idea that they, uh, you know, quit on that day to specifically hurt Marvel. Right, that it was malicious. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I love that list, right? Because that's like five legendary artists and then Don Heck, <laughs> right? And just like who's who's Don Heck in this metaphor? <laughs> Which of your six guys are you kind of like half insulting by saying he's Don Heck? <laughs> you know, in this group, right? But so anyway, they've you know they've they've got this up now. Now all of the time that they're making press now, now it's January ninety two. Uh, they're going out talking about what they're doing uh, to the press to anybody who'll talk. And of course, this is huge news, right? Like I mean, Marvel's guys leaving are, are uh, is this is going to change the industry, right? And. McFarlane and Liefeld in particular spend a lot of time in January and February of 92, basically, uh, talking about ethics in the industry, right? And like how uh, it's, it's unethical that Marvel keeps all of this money and treats its artists poorly and everything. So 
several people kind of like point out at the time that the idea of anybody who would partner up with a company like Malibu and then complain about ethics <laughs> is kind of hilarious because let's just say Malibu did not have the best reputation, not for mistreating its uh, creators, but for generally being a slipshod, poorly run company. Right. right. Uh, so we'll talk quickly about Malibu here. Malibu was started by a guy named Scott Rosenberg who had owned a comics distributor back in the eighties called sunrise distributors. And they had been one of the, you know, kind of like major uh, distribution operations that got comics out to newsstands, got them out to stores, got them out to retailers, et cetera. And he also had been the primary financial backer of several small black and white publishers that he was funding with the money from sunrise distributors. He was not publicly associated with any of these companies, right? Like his name wasn't on anything for it, but it was his money and it was Sunrise's distribution uh, was the cash flow that kind of like was starting up these black and white companies like Eternity Comics, Imperial Comics, Amazing Comics. Mostly this was junk. Mostly these were not terribly good. They were black and white at the time that like the big black and white, uh, you know, explosion happened post Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? When like everybody had a black and white title usually ripping off Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something like that, right? Um, and so uh, Sunrise got into financial trouble and was accused by some of the people that it was distributing of saying, you're spending money on your own stuff. Like, we, we know that your owner is actually in back of these companies and you're taking care of your own companies at our expense, right? You're making sure their stuff ships on time, even though you can't afford to ship our stuff on time. And so okay. this became kind of like a dispute, and they basically had to go to court to prove that Rosenberg, in fact, even owned those companies, right? That he was the primary fin financial backer of all of these like small indie publishers. And in hmm. 1987, he finally announced, he basically lost the suit and said, yeah, okay, you're right. I am, in fact, the owner of all of these companies. And most of them are going out of business because they, I, we don't have any money. Sunrise is losing money. And so Sunrise is going to put paying our bills on hold quote unquote, on hold, while we close down all of these publishers. And then at that point, we'll catch up on our bills. And of course, nobody believed him. <laughs> right. And of course, this never happened. Sunrise basically evaporated as a company, owing a lot of people a bunch of money. Rosenberg kind of like skipped out with, you know, his share and started a new company that was Malibu as a publisher and left a lot of former business partners partners out there kind of you know holding the bag owed money that they weren't seeing right and they kind of like tried to go after malibu to say you still owe us money from sunrise right and it was like no sorry malibu's a separate company we're, we're dissolved in court sunrise went bankrupt so too bad there's nothing to get money out of but here's my new company right and malibu became successful by third party, you know, third, third level publisher standards, right? It was actually made money. It was profitable. And the main reason it was profitable was because they did Men in Black before right. it was a movie, right? Like they were, the, they were the, the, the indie home of Men in Black when it became popular enough to become a movie, right? That was a very successful title. Uh, they also had the Robotech license. So Robotech, well, that's some pretty popular comics in the late 80s. That did, that did pretty well, right? 
Um, and so Rosenberg, of course, you know, kind of he'll show up in a bunch of different stuff. He's he has a big part when we actually get around to doing the Kamiko story. So he'll, he'll turn around again. But anyway, the reason like we talk about this is because many people in the industry kind of rolled their eyes and laughed at the idea that like, oh, we've joined Malibu because of ethics. <laughs> right? It's just like we know Scott Rosenberg. No, there's no ethics involved in this for it. You're here to make money, right? <laughs> uh not only, I mean, and we didn't even talk, Malibu, uh, you know, not only had financial issues, but like the stuff that Malibu was churning out, yes, they had Men in Black and they had Ro Robotech and everything, but they also had a lot of stuff that was basically porn, right? Uh, they had uh, Leather and Lace and Hardcore and Unfury and all of these other, uh, you know, the, the Barry Blair, you know, uh, Dark Elf stuff and all that, all that kind of stuff, basically. So... The idea that these big money guys were associating themselves with Scott Rosenberg, there was a lot of question as to like, how is that going to work, right? Like all of you right. guys are worth so much more than he is individually, but the one thing he's got that you don't is he knows how to manage distribution. He knows how to actually get comics from a printer to a store, right? So, uh, you know, image begins with all of this noise about creator rights and artistic freedom and et cetera, et cetera, of course. But they don't know how to do it, right? Like they have, they have all these great ideas and no particular understanding of like how a business is run. So except for the idea that they were going to own their own stuff, that they mm -hmm. were going to, you know, like own the, the rights to these characters and all of the ancillary sideways that they made money, everything else that they did as a company, they basically just copied Marvel because that's the system they knew. Right. That's their, that's their understanding of how it works. Right. So, while all this is happening, Stan Lee is completely out of the loop, right? Nobody's told him about these guys leaving. Uh, you know, he's, he's not paying attention to the industry stuff. And so at the end of 1991, while they were still, you know, getting set up to, to leave and to have these meetings, he is doing a TV show uh, called Comic Book Greats, in which Stan Lee goes around and he interviews either old-timey guys that he knows, right? Like from his time period and visits their studios and sees them working or visits some hot new young kid. And of course, because it's Stan Lee, all of the hot new young kids that he goes to see are Marvel guys, right? right. So he goes to uh, McFarland's studio and uh, has like an interview with them, still thinking they're Marvel guys, right? He doesn't know they're mad, right? And so he right. goes in and actually the first time anybody got to see the stuff that they were working on he wanders around in their studio and they've got artwork up on the walls for the new characters they are making that they're not going to sell to marvel right <laughs> and lee is just kind of like hmm, that's these are really good I, boy i can't wait to see when marvel comes out with these things who's that oh that's this new character i made he's called spawn <laughs> right <laughs> this is a new thing i'm doing it's called young blood you know and stan's like oh that's very exciting you know kind of no idea that he's not going to make any money off of this right so, no. you know, like the, 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 the press is building, the story is building. We now know who these characters are because we saw them in Stan's show, right? Like we have this idea of what's coming out for them. Um, the uh, image basically says, okay, one more guy uh, that we want to bring in. They get one more guy in like January of 92, uh, who is Wils Portasio. 
And Wills Portacio was another guy who had been in the Homage Studios office. He was another guy who was friends with Jim Lee and Mark Silvestri, and he'd worked with them. Um, and so he had been on vacation in the Philippines while all this was going on. He went there basically for Christmas. He like left at Thanksgiving and didn't come back until January. Right. And so he missed all of this. And he comes back to work from his like long vacation in the Philippines. They're all like, hey, we all just quit Marvel. You want to come join us? Uh, okay, sure. Right. So he joins up at the end. So now they have seven artists committed to being part of Image. The eighth right. guy who is coming along with this, who is also leaving because he's mad at Marvel, is Chris Claremont. Now, Chris Claremont's not an artist. He's a writer. He's been one of Marvel's most successful writers for many years. But in the last couple of years, after having basically turned the X-Men into the franchise that they were, he has now started fighting with Marvel about editorial interference. And you know he's not getting enough money and basically he's also upset with how he's been treated by marvel he's been taken off a couple of the titles that he was working on that he really liked kind of like in mid storyline there was a lot of editorial interference people were starting to think that chris claremont wasn't his stuff didn't go well with the hot new artists right like that his his stories were too dense they had too much uh too much talking going on in them right like who wants to see a big word bubble with a whole bunch of like, you know, plot exposition covering up some of, you know, uh, uh, Rob Liefeld's art, right? That's right. The, what are you doing? Get, get all that, all those words out of the way here. Um, and so Claremont kind of hilariously says, you know what? I'm a big supporter of what these guys are doing, even though I write in a very different style from what it is that they're mostly looking for. I completely support what they're doing. And though I'm not going to be an owner in anything that's going on, any of these guys who need help with like how to write a comic, I'm going, I'm totally going with them. I'm leaving Marvel. I'm going out, you know, striking out on my own as a freelancer again. And one of the things I'm going to do is consult and, you know, help write scripts for the characters that they're churning out because most of these guys have never written, you know, McFarlane was the only one of them who had any real writing experience. Eric Larson had a little bit, but you know, a lot of these guys had never written a comic themselves ever before right? right so they they bring chris claremont along with them to kind of like teach them how to script mm. right and he's not a member but he's definitely kind of like the silent eighth partner you know in in the early days of like pushing what's going on mm -hmm. and so now we get to the middle of february 1992 and image announces publicly what they're doing to the world right it's been two months since the auction during this time, they have built a company, come up with a plan, signed Malibu, signed Claremont, signed Wills Portacio. They have a, they have a, a scheme in place. And Marvel in particular, of course, is the one that is struck by this because most of these guys have some connection. Their connections to each other are all through X-Men. That's how right. they, most of them know each other in the first place, right? And so the fact that Marvel suddenly has nobody left working on its flagship title, right, that they've all walked away, is a huge blow. On February 17th, 1992, the day that this announcement goes public in the press, Marvel stock falls $11 that day. It literally just goes right down to, it loses two-thirds of its value. And with that plummet, I think it's a good time to uh, break here and we'll pick up next time. With, right, um, you can tell the rest of the story, absolutely. With image part two. Yep, now that our, of our, uh, all of our players are together uh, and uh, Marvel's uh, ticked off, um, we'll see what happens to them uh, in the next episode. 
Um, thank you for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming.